If not handled properly, a prior work conflict can lead to a disqualification motion, a malpractice claim, an ethics violation, a fee forfeiture, or a combination of those problems. Yet prior work conflicts are often hard to spot. I'm Terry Garland, and you're listening to The Portable Ethics Lawyer. Today, we're joined by Jeff Kraus, Vice President and Senior Loss Prevention Counsel at Alas. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Terry. I'm happy to be here. Let's start by defining terms. Jeff, what is a prior work conflict? A prior work conflict can arise any time a firm has to evaluate or make use of the firm's own work. It can happen when the firm is handling a subsequent matter where its earlier work is relevant, or it can happen in a later stage of the same matter. For example, assume a lawyer drafts a contract and later another lawyer at the same firm handles a lawsuit involving the interpretation of that contract. That's a classic scenario for the prior work conflict. Here's how that conflict would unfold. If the opposing counsel argues that the contract is ambiguous, the lawyer at the firm that drafted the contract might not be able to respond to the argument impartially. Instead, he might push the client into a poor settlement because he fears that discovery might show that his partner did a lousy job drafting the contract, and that, in turn, could lead to a malpractice claim against his firm. Or maybe he resists settlement offers because he knows his firm will have to kick in some money. Instead, he stubbornly argues that the contract was drafted perfectly, and meanwhile, his client loses the opportunity to settle cheaply. In other words, the lawyer's personal interest in protecting his law firm's reputation and balance sheet is interfering with his ability to represent his client. Something tells me there's a rule against that. There sure is. It's Rule 1.782 of the ABA Model Rules. Among other things, it says that lawyers shall not represent clients when there is a significant risk that the representation will be materially limited by the lawyer's own personal interest. That raises an important question. Does the mere existence of a prior work conflict mean that lawyers are prohibited from going forward with the representation? No, no, no. In many cases, it can be resolved. The rule also says that in appropriate circumstances, lawyers may proceed, provided that they obtain the client's consent. Now, I'll circle back to consent issues later. But for now, I want to emphasize that in our experience, the biggest problem has been a failure to recognize and resolve the conflict in the first place. So what are the consequences of failing to catch those conflicts? Well, they can be very serious. For one thing, an unresolved prior work conflict can lead to disqualification. That's what happened to a large New York law firm in the Eurocom case, which is from the 80s but is still good law. Defendants moved to add the Cleary Gottlieb firm as a third-party defendant or, in the alternative, disqualify it from acting as plaintiff's counsel because it had represented the plaintiff in the transaction that was in dispute. The court granted the DQ motion, reasoning that there was a potential conflict between the firm and its clients for two reasons. First, under the applicable law, the plaintiff's recovery could be reduced due to Cleary's fault, which exposed the firm to a potential malpractice case and provided it with an incentive to minimize the role it had played in the underlying transaction. Second, in advising plaintiff on settlement, 
the firm would have to evaluate whether its prior work reduced the value of plaintiff's claims. And according to the court, the client was entitled to advice on settlement from counsel, and I quote, who are entirely uninhibited by any personal involvement of their own in the merits. Any other consequences? Sure, and we see those in our claims experience. An unresolved prior work conflict can complicate the defense of a malpractice claim, making it more expensive to settle or more difficult to win on the pleadings, for example. And in addition to, or instead of paying damages, the firm might have to disgorge its fees for the relevant work. That sounds dangerous. Let's give our listeners some more examples so they know what to watch for. At the outset, you mentioned that prior work conflicts can arise in the later stage of the same matter. Could you give us some examples of when that happens? Sure. I've got two. One that happens to litigators and another one that could apply to almost any lawyer, including transactional lawyers. What's the first example? The first one involves sanctions motions in which the law firm's advice might be at issue. For example, if the motion seeks sanctions against the client for failing to preserve documents, are there colorable questions about the timing and clarity of the firm's litigation hold advice? Yeah, we've seen that situation before. What's the second example? Making a drafting error, which, like I said, could happen to anyone. It doesn't always create a prior work conflict, of course, but it can. Let's imagine a series of deals involving the same parties. Perhaps they're working on leases for various properties. After the first one closes, an associate discovers that he made a mistake on the documents. He reports his mistake to the partner on the matter. Does she tell the client and get permission to proceed? Or instead, does she contact opposing counsel and ask if he'll allow her to revise the documents on the first lease in exchange for better terms on the second one? To sweeten the deal, she happens to mention how much business she has referred to his firm over the years. Although this might seem reasonable at first blush, the lawyer is offering the other side a better deal at her client's expense if he'll agree to help her fix and conceal her firm's mistake. Yikes. What about some examples involving subsequent matters? Oh, I've got plenty of those. We started with litigating a dispute over a contract the firm drafted. There's also investigating a matter that implicates the firm's prior advice, litigating over a patent that the firm prosecuted, handling an appeal after representing the same client at trial, issuing an unqualified opinion stating that a bond offering your firm structured is tax-exempt, and then defending that opinion in an IRS audit, and doing due diligence that involves evaluating the firm's own work, such as its opinions on patents. There are too many possible scenarios to list, so we've developed a series of questions to ask. That would be helpful. Tell us about that. You should ask yourself, does your current work require you to evaluate the past work of the firm? Are there alternative ways to approach the problem, some of which might benefit the firm at the expense of the client? Will a firm lawyer be a witness in the matter? And finally, in light of all of the circumstances, would a reasonable lawyer conclude that your firm can give objective advice to the client? If the answers to any of those questions make you uncomfortable, we do not recommend solving this on your own, right? That's right. 
This is one for your firm's general counsel. They'll decide whether the issue rises to the level of a prior work conflict in the first place. If it does, they'll work with you to determine whether the firm should withdraw or whether it would be appropriate to seek the client's consent to continuing the representation. And if consent is sought, a number of issues have to be addressed, and the consent must be confirmed in writing. Your general counsel can work with you to make those determinations and draft any disclosures and consents that are required. Are there any other resources available? We've posted a PDF of a Connecticut ethics decision on this topic, Connecticut Opinion 2014-5, on the landing page for this episode, which is available to everyone. Additional resources are available from Alas to general counsels and lawyers at firms that we insure. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to do it, Terry. Until next time, I'm Terry Garland, and this is the Portable Ethics Lawyer. This podcast is provided for educational purposes to assist lawyers in avoiding ethics violations, malpractice suits, other professional liability claims, and management liability claims. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. The recommendations contained in this podcast are not necessarily appropriate for every lawyer or law firm. In determining the best course of action, lawyers should consider the applicable legal authorities and all relevant facts and circumstances. Copyright 2018 by Attorneys Liability Assurance Society. All rights reserved.